This podcast episode may contain themes and content that could offend, trigger or alarm some people. The details for Lifeline and 1800 Respect can be found in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to the Bad All About Crime podcast. My name's Suzanne Leal, and joining me later in the episode to chat are Andy Muir, Dr Sue Turnbull, and Catherine dupelieu Manager. Today we're looking at what happens when things go wrong in our legal system, when the guilty stay free while innocent people are arrested and convicted. I'll be talking to the renowned forensic scientist and criminologist, Dr Xanthi Mallet, about criminal cases that still worry her at night. After that, I'll chat to best-selling novelist Candace Fox about why she keeps coming back to the wrongfully accused. Then Andy, Sue, Catherine and I will consider that all-important question, but what if they're innocent? First, let's welcome Dr. Xanthi Mallet to the show. Welcome to you, Xanthi. Your new book, Reasonable Doubt, is a fascinating collection of wrongful convictions and cases where you feel there's been a miscarriage of justice. What prompted you to write this new book? Well, I've been looking at um, miscarriages of justice, wrongful convictions, really since the earliest stages in my forensic career when I was doing my PhD. It was really an integral part of the analysis that I did, why do cases go wrong? So although it was a forensic PhD, I was looking at recognition of faces um, from CCTV. I had to understand expert evidence. And so I started to look at some cases with experts who had given evidence and the evidence was misleading for one reason or another. And so I became interested at that point. What I really liked about this book was how you examine issues of wrongful convictions and problems with innocence or with guilt through the vehicle of case studies. And there's some really fascinating case studies that you pick in your book. And I'd like to talk to you about a couple of them. What I want to start with is the case of Andrew Mallard, who was accused of murdering Pamela Lawrence in Western Australia in 1995. Just to set the scene, can you tell us a bit about Pamela Lawrence and what exactly happened to her? Yeah, so Pamela Lawrence was, um, she ran a jewellery store in in, in uh, Perth and she was at work one day on her own and somebody had come into the store and brutally assaulted her. There were no witnesses and she did succumb to her injuries later on and she died. So this obviously became a murder investigation at that stage. Um, The police didn't have very many leads and they honed in on Andrew Mallard because he was known to police. He had some mental health problems um, and he was in the area at the time and he became an easy target in essence, for for the investigators. Um, They undertook some pretty heavy um, analysis of his movements, but they basically... um, got tunnel vision with the case and they basically pressured him when they interviewed him um, to confess. And he was at the stage where he would say anything just to end the interrogations. They were really quite, um, yeah, quite aggressive. 
So he went to prison, um, sadly, for 12 years, uh, almost 12 years, before it was found that there was forensic evidence at the scene um, that could exclude him as the likely murderer. And that evidence consisted of a palm print that was on one of the glass cases um, where the jury was actually displayed. And this was cleaned between every single person coming in. So they knew that if anyone had been in the shop like a guest, they would have cleaned it afterwards. So it was basically the last person who'd been in there left that handprint. That was never um, never displayed at trial. It certainly wasn't Andrew Mallard's handprint. It was it was somebody else's who was later identified. So that's what we class as exculpatory evidence that obviously should have been provided to the defence and he probably wouldn't have been found guilty. Um, he did go to prison and sadly died recently um, as a result of a hit and run. So he wasn't even out of prison very long before he lost his life. Another action that resulted from that was the fact that the individual who was actually guilty of that murder, because they remained at large, went on and murdered someone else. So had that handprint been analysed and that person been identified at the time, then somebody else's life could also have been saved and Andrew Mallard wouldn't have spent 12 years in prison um, being wrongfully convicted. Now, I've never worked for the police. I've never been a police officer. But even I can think that if you've got fingerprints on a display cabinet in a jewellery shop, you would need to investigate that. Why wasn't that done? Well, I imagine they did actually collect that evidence and it didn't fit their narrative. And so that's one of the problems that we see with the forensic process. And that's one of the concerns I have, that it is the police and their, you know, those who work directly with the police who collect that evidence. And so they're the ones who decide at the scene initially what do we? What's going to be relevant? Um, they're the ones who then process that and decide in what order that's processed. So you may there may be thousands of pieces of trace evidence and physical evidence from a scene, and that gets triaged as part of the investigation. But obviously, unless um, that's analysed and catalogued, and any information passed to the defence that may potentially lead to um, that person being uh, not convicted then, you know, the, the defence don't know what they're asking for. So it's a really difficult process where it's almost weighted against the accused from the beginning. And so that's one of my concerns is that, you know, if they choose not to include that evidence, if that doesn't fit the narrative, then how do you, how do you prove it's not you when you don't even know what evidence could potentially be available? And Andrew Mallard was a particularly vulnerable suspect, wasn't he? What was vulnerable about him and how did the record of interview proceed that concerns you? So he did have significant mental health problems. He was um, he was in a mental health facility when he for for part of the interviews when he was originally being questioned by police. So he was vulnerable in that he I don't believe he understood um the kind of problems he might be having. He certainly should have had somebody there representing his interests. He should have had a, a solicitor or other person um, who could have helped guide him through that process. And certainly when the police were very aggressively questioning him for a protracted period of time, which is one of the techniques that unfortunately they can use, then he was he did not have suitable level of protection because he just wasn't... Um, 
he wasn't cognitively in a place where he could make good decisions and they took advantage of that. So yeah, he was, um, he was particularly vulnerable. And we see that a lot, that a lot of people who are already in a vulnerable state, be that through mental health conditions or through um, language barriers or any of these things, then if they're already disadvantaged, then coming into contact with the criminal justice system, and normally the police is the first contact, further disadvantages them. What would you say to our listeners who are thinking, listen, if I were arrested and I know I'm innocent, then of course I'd give a police record of interview because I'm innocent. What can go wrong? What would your answer be to that? Oh, a lot can go wrong. You know, even if um, I- I'm not a lawyer, I mean, you're a lawyer, right? And and you would understand the legal process. I'm not a lawyer, but I've spent enough time in this space that if I were ever questioned by the police, and caveat, some of my very dearest friends are police, and I have no issue with the police at all. But even if I was arrested, I would not say a word until I had legal representation, because I've seen it go wrong too often. And I would much rather that I have that protection and other people I know have that protection so that they are not one of the people in my next book about wrongful convictions. Hmm, We'll look forward to that. I'd like to move on to Khalid Baker. Who is Khalid Baker? So Khalid Baker was a young man who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, He went to a party in Melbourne with three of his friends and everything was fine and there, but there was lots of drinking. And as they were leaving the party, an altercation started with another group of young men. Um, and this happened in a stairway of like a warehouse. It was kind of an industrial party. And the issue was actually um, race-based in that the allegation is that one of the, the other group of men in the hall made uh, a racist comment to Khalid and his friends. Um, and so this altercation kicked off in the hallway, different people were kind of pushing and shoving. And sadly, one of the other group was fell or was pushed, we're not, nobody is sure, through a window um, and fell about four metres and he died of his injuries. Now, Khalid was there, except he wasn't the one having a, a tussle with the, the man who died. It was his friend. Now, they then, obviously, the police were called. Khalid and his friend were both arrested for murder, charged with murder. Um, the cases were run concurrently, even though they were both being charged separately. And what is really odd about this is that Khalid's friend, who's never been named because he was only 17 at the time, straight up put his hands up and said, you know, this had nothing to do with Khalid. He wasn't the one who was tussling with that guy. There was certainly no intent to cause, you know, significant harm to him. They were just two boys having having a, a pushing match, basically. And yeah, he he said, you know, it's nothing to do with Khalid. It was, it was me. If anyone you know, is responsible as me. So Khalid shouldn't be being charged with murder as well. However, very oddly, um, the young man who was actually involved in that tussle was found not guilty and Khalid was found guilty and went to prison for murder. And he's done his time. He's out of prison, but he's still a convicted murderer and still is trying to clear his name because that's not Um, That's not a stigma that this young man deserves to carry around for the rest of his life. In your book, you you write that Khalid Baker's case has been taken up by an organisation called the Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. What is that initiative? 
So the Bridge of Hope initiative, um, Innocence Initiative, is run out of RMIT down in Melbourne. And it's um, run by Dr. Michelle Reuters, who has a law background. And basically, they look at cases where there may be a um, reason to conclude that they can prove factual innocence. So that's slightly different than um, the, they're not trying to say that people are innocent necessarily. What they're saying is there's something wrong with this case, either the way it was processed or there is potentially exculpatory evidence which could lead to a conviction being overturned. So people can appeal to this group. They submit whatever paperwork they have and Michelle and her students um, will work through that case, do all of the background um, searches that they need to do. They can do freedom of information, all of that kind of thing. And then if they get to a point where it could go to appeal or it could go to an attorney general for a review, for example, then they will actually help with that process. The really important thing about innocence initiatives is that the people who appeal to them basically have nowhere else to go. Um, they have exhausted all of their appeals. That's one of the conditions of taking the cases on. And in essence, they need somebody on the outside as a champion. And so these initiatives, they obviously can't help everybody. Um, and it's not always the case that they find evidence of potential innocence or factual innocence. Yet they are a position of hope for those, um, some people who need it. And Khalid is certainly one of those people. And that's still ongoing, is that right? So we just listen out to see if anything happens with Khalid Baker's case. Yeah, that is still ongoing. Um, and, you know, he's such an inspirational young man. He's just amazing. And he's he was a champion boxer before he went into prison and he kept training in prison. And he is just such a positive role model because he never let it break him. And so he's come out literally fighting now to clear his name. And I remain hopeful that he will do so because, you know, he is not a young man who, who should have ever been found guilty. Um, he was misidentified by some of the other people at the party based on, I believe, his, um, his racial or ancestral background. They just got it wrong. They just thought, you know, they, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and that's one that I would like to see set right. We'll keep our ears out for that. I'd like to move on to the case of Celia Duty, who was murdered on Brampton Island in 1983. The case remained unsolved until 2001 when Wayne Butler was arrested. Why was he arrested and why so late? So this was another difficult case. So uh, Celia was murdered on the beach. There were no witnesses. Um, the time frame was pretty narrow because um, a small plane had flown over that particular beach and the pilot had said she wasn't sunbathing um, when, when he flew over. So shortly after that plane must have passed over the beach, somebody uh, attacked Celia violently hit her around the head with um, like a, a stone and and she died. And the problem was there was no real, there was, there was evidence at the scene, um, forensic evidence at the scene, but they didn't have any suspects. Um, a lot of people go to the island as day trippers and, you know, the police were really stuck as to who might have committed this crime and why. 
So as it transpired later on, um, the accused, um, his, his relationship broke down and his partner, actually ex-partner came forward and said she thought he may be the person responsible. He'd gone wandering off for a period of time and left her. And so he had opportunity. Um, and so he was actually linked via his DNA to Celia's murder. This all became problematic because the DNA, um, it wasn't conclusive. And experts have since argued about the weight of this evidence and whether it should, in fact, have led to a successful conviction. So this is literally an argument over the science in this case and what experts think and how that should be weighted in a particular conviction. For most lay people, DNA is the magic solution to a crime. Your DNA's on the murder weapon, your DNA's on the murder location, and that's really that. Um, but there can be problems with DNA evidence. What problems have you seen in the course of your career? Oh, there can be lots of problems with DNA. Um, so there, there can be a genuine reason DNA is at a scene. One of the things that I like to do to my students sometimes is if I'm talking to them about this, then I might walk around the class and without noticing, just like pick up one of their water bottles or something and go back to the front and say, okay, if I go back to my office now and somebody murders me or attacks me, whose water bottle is this? Right. And one of the students will put their hand up and go, okay, that's now in my office. And now you have to prove that you have not been in my office because your DNA and your fingerprints are on an item that is in my office. And now you may say, but I've never been in there. And the police will say, but you have, because we've got your biology in that office. So how did it get there? And you may not know that I accidentally picked up your water bottle instead of mine and took that back to my office. So you then have to try and come up with another reason it could have been there. And that can be very difficult. Or it can be that, you know, somebody's visited a scene and there's a genuine reason that they were there or there can be transfer evidence, you know. Did somebody uh, did somebody shake somebody's hand and then there was transfer of DNA and then the offender touched a murder weapon and now my DNA is on it because I transferred some of my skin cells to that person and that person to the murder weapon. That doesn't mean I touched it, but my DNA says I did. So there's all sorts of issues around transference and why DNA is at a scene. And the other issue that we see a lot is when there's, when there's a match to DNA, that the, the jury or the judge or whomever is listening to that, even in the media, will think, well, that's a slam dunk, right? Well, not necessarily because, you know, did it get contaminated at the scene? Did it get contaminated at the lab? Has somebody made an error? in the evaluation of that evidence? Is it even a match? So there's lots of things that can go wrong, but it's so heavily weighted in the judicial process that if a match is achieved, then it's it's considered guilty. And I think that it, we need to be really careful when we're interpreting the evidence and explaining the evidence to a jury and the weight of the evidence in that case, that that's where that's where we can protect the accused by presenting the evidence fairly um, within the balance of everything else that is presented. I want to turn to a very different case, and this is the case of Lawyer X, who we now know is Nicola Gobbo. For listeners out there who don't know anything about Nicola Gobbo, can you briefly introduce her to me, please? 
So Nicola Govo, oh, I love this case. I love it so much. Nicola Govo, I think she is still a solicitor, still uh, still uh, registered down in Melbourne. Now, she was a practicing solicitor. She was basically defending some of the worst of the worst of Melbourne's gangland. Unfortunately, she was also um, working with the police as a prosecutor. So she kind of crossed both sides of that that path, which is not necessarily uh, a problem until it became known that she was actually feeding information to her clients. And she was also feeding information to the police about what her clients were saying. So she was um, basically working both sides of that fence and, yeah, informing on her clients. And this only came out fairly recently. And I was amazed because this woman came from like legal royalty and she was on the fast track to, you know, being highly influential in that world. And yet this is somebody who is breaking every lawyerly code that there is. You do not inform on your clients to the police. More than that, though, it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do when, you know, these are some of the most dangerous individuals um, in the criminal underworld. So this was a highly risky maneuver by Nicola Gobbo, and she did it for years. Um, and eventually her name was released. She fought hard to stop that from happening. And then the fallout started in the criminal justice system because all of the cases that she's been involved in, because she had been breaking the law and informing on her own clients, that called into question everything that she'd done throughout her legal career. And so the appeal started and people have already had some of those appeals be successfully overheld on the basis that the evidence is tainted through her um, through her being involved in that particular prosecution. Why do you think she did it? Why do you think she informed on her clients? Personally, I think she did it because she loved the game. She loved being powerful. She loved playing both sides. She loved being the one who had that information that she could give to the police and then feeding information from the police to her clients. This was, yeah, this is a really high stakes game to someone like Nicola Gobbo. Um, and I think she enjoyed it. I know that in some way she's kind of been painted as a victim that was taken advantage of by police, but I don't see that at all. I think she did. She knew exactly what she was doing. She's obviously highly intelligent, fully understood the risks and chose to do it anyway. So, um, yeah, she's, she's certainly a fascinating character. Um, and yeah, I think she did it for enjoyment, to be honest. And finally, Xanthi, you've considered hundreds of cases in the course of your career. Of all those cases, which one still bothers you the most? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, we talked about Khalid earlier. He he bothers me um, because it just summarises everything that's wrong with the justice system, doesn't it? You know, and just I, I just cannot understand how a young man's life can be affected just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, just such an awful situation. Um, There's another man called Kelvin Condren who was accused and found guilty of murdering his girlfriend up in Queensland. And again, that was just the police doing a poor investigation. He was vulnerable um, and the police took advantage of that to get a quick conviction 
And he was actually already in police custody when his girlfriend was murdered. Um, he'd been picked up earlier in the afternoon for being drunk and disorderly. So, you know, if, if that's not the best alibi ever, I don't know what is. And yet he went to prison. And so I just look at these cases and think some of these people just are already so disadvantaged and then they come into contact with a system that's meant to protect people and, you know, and it all goes wrong. And so, yeah, they do stay with me, you know, and I, and I just, I like to see the cases, I like to see the cases have gone wrong, get put right, because I have to believe in the criminal justice system and I have to believe it gets it right most of the time. Otherwise I couldn't do my job. And so there has to be a light shine when we get it wrong, um, light shine on it when we get it wrong so that, so that we can put those wrongs right. That's been a fascinating conversation, Xanthi. For all the listeners out there, uh, Dr. Xanthi Mallet's latest book is Reasonable Doubt. It's a fascinating account of case studies where the law perhaps has let people down, where there's been a wrongful conviction and perhaps someone innocent has been convicted or perhaps the guilty have been let go free. Thanks so much for your time, Xanthi. Thanks very much. Candace Fox is the best-selling writer of 14 novels set both in Australia and America. In 2015, she attracted the attention of the writer James Patterson and they've now collaborated on seven novels with more to come. I really love Candace's writing because as well as being gripping, action-filled and quirky enough to bring a smile or even a laugh to my face, it also considers really important social and legal issues, especially this one. What if they're innocent? Hello, Candice. Welcome to the Bad All About Crime podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Candice, I first came to you through your novel Crimson Lake, and from the beginning I really loved Ted Concafi, the former police detective accused of an awful crime. What was the inspiration for him, Candice? Oh, there were a range of different things that came together to make Ted. Um, I was very – I've always loved presenting uh, the reader with – someone that they can fall in love with and then swapping that around, changing that around. Uh, And so in my previous novels I had made serial killers who I tried to make kind of relatable and understandable and, and, you know, the reader hopefully is uncomfortable with how close they're getting to this bad guy. Um, So with Ted I was interested in flipping that. I wanted to make someone very lovable and kind and nice and, sexy and then I wanted to make it look like he was guilty um and it's 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 that discomfort in the reader that I'm chasing because I think that the 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 more uncomfortable the reader is the faster they'll flip pages because they want to know want to know want to know you know and then suddenly they've read the book in two days um and and the, the major crime in that novel was obviously uh inspired by the abduction of Daniel Morecambe in Queensland because it it unfolds at a bus stop and uh, uh, Daniel Morecambe was 12. He was abducted from a a bus stop and murdered and for 14 years the police were trying to solve that crime and they had one very good lead. It was that 72 people on the, the very busy road going past that bus stop on that day saw a blue car parked just near him. And that blue car was the, you know, it was the major lead. The police had 
a blue car room that they would take witnesses into and they say, were the windows like this or was it more like this? And uh turned out that, that blue car had nothing to do with the crime at all. It most likely was there, uh, but um, the, his, his killer, Brett, Brett Peter Cowan, was driving a white four-wheel drive. And so I thought to myself, who was in that blue car? And what would that experience be like to be that person uh, who was just there at the wrong place at the wrong time? And, and uh, you know, that's what the crux of my writing is really, is looking at real-life crimes and saying, oh, but what about this? Well, what about that? You know? So as you've said, we've got Ted Concaffey who's had this upstanding life that just gets destroyed because, as you say, he may well have only been at the wrong place at the wrong time. What is it, do you think, that's so compelling in fiction about reading about someone who's trying to prove their innocence? Because I think that um, everyone has experienced the helplessness of being accused of something that you didn't do and how awful that is to, particularly when it's strangers who are saying, you have done, you know, you, you look like the kind of person who would do this. When I wrote that book, uh, we were just starting to have a sort of a mini Me Too moment in Australia. Um, there were the accusations against uh, Robert Hughes and Rolf Harris, and the accusations popped up in the media and obviously people all around me were discussing them and I was hearing very scary things like, oh, you can tell he's that kind of guy because he just looks like that. And you think he just looks like that? Like that is terrifying because, you know, what is a what is a, a child sex offender look like, you know, um, and that's, it's terrible for people who just accidentally look like that, you know, that this this culturally accepted, oh, that's what a creepy pedophile looks like. Uh, and it's also very damaging, you know, it, it's not very useful to people who are, are, are looking out for people who might be difficult, uh, dangerous around their children and thinking, oh, he doesn't look like one of those types. Yeah, it was just... Um, it was scary to think that there's this really solid, clear perpetrator look or behaviour um, that is, is is written about in crime fiction and it is on our movie screens and it's, it has no basis in reality whatsoever. Mm. And you continue this theme in your more recent works as well. In The Chase, you really up the ante. You've got a man, John Cradle, who's accused not only of a violent and sexual offence, but indeed of murdering his wife and his child. And he's out to prove his innocence. And then moving on in Gathering Dark, we meet Blair Harbour, who might have killed, but who might not be a murder. Why do you keep on returning to these wrongfully accused? What was it about John Cradle that had you interested? One of my favourite films when I was a kid was The Fugitive um, with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and I must have watched that, you know, a hundred times in my life and I was thinking to myself, I want to write something like that and I, I, I was saying why, why am I so compelled by um, Dr Richard Kimball's 
journey in that story. And I think it's just because the the only thing worse than having a, a, a loved one killed um, would be being accused of it. I think, like, and and that's where my mind goes to. What is the what is the extreme of human experience? What would be so bad, and then what would be worse? Uh, and I, I wanted to write a kind of an homage to that uh, film. I think because uh, it just really touched me. It's always just sort of stayed around in my in my life. It's one of those things where you're 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 rooting for the good guy and you're rooting for the guy who's trying to catch him. You're rooting for everyone really, which makes it an incredible amount of momentum um, in the the book or the film. Um, and it's just a strategy. I had written. Uh, I had written books before where you know who the killer is and what drives the novel is, you know, trying to catch him. And I'd written books before where it was like who is the killer and that what drives the novel is trying to discover that. Um, so it's a different kind of strategy where you say here is the killer and then you flip that on its head. You you present it like it really, it really looked like he did it. You know, he was there and he has that kind of behaviour, he has all of the motive and the opportunity, it all lines up the same as it did with uh, Ted. He was there, everyone saw him there, you know, and then I, I just present it to you as a nice little package and then I say let's unfold that and go deep into that. It's convincing the reader of something uh, and then unconvincing them. Um, I had a uh, an English teacher do that to me actually once when I was a teenager. Now I'm thinking about it. Um, she presented the class with the story of Reuben Carter, the hurricane Reuben Carter, and the the shooting in the in the diner. And she presented all of the evidence to suggest that he wasn't involved in that crime. And as as young kids, we were like, oh, not young kids, but like 12, you know, we were like, oh, my God, this is a terrible injustice. And she she gave us absolutely everything and then, bang, she gave us the other side, you know, all of the arguments to say that he did do that crime. And my mind was, my 12-year-old mind was just, blown it was just shattered and I, that experience has stayed with me um all of these years of that flipping I, I was so sure I was so sure that he was innocent and then oh you give me all the evidence to the contrary um so I enjoy that experience playing with people's emotions it's manipulative <laughs> it's just manipulating the reader and it's fun does that explain perhaps where Jessica Sanchez comes from Jessica Sanchez is also one of the main characters in Gathering Dark. She's a police officer and if she knows anything, it, she knows that she's right and she's always been certain of everything she does in her investigations and then she starts to doubt herself. Do you think that Jessica Sanchez comes right back to that exercise in English about Reuben Carter? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think that I was trying to write in that novel about strong women and one of the strongest and bravest things that I think you can do sometimes is admit that you're wrong uh, because admitting that you're wrong, particularly in public and particularly when you've hurt someone, uh, as she has by arresting Blair, um, it's hard to do. It's just so easy to knuckle down, double down, forget about it, put it away. But in this novel, 
Jessica has to, you know, go all the way back to the beginning and eat humble pie and say, yeah, I, I was wrong about that one and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. And that's incredibly brave. She's also, um, she's also the outsider in, in her, um, you know, in LAPD. And I, I, I think I was writing about my experience of joining the Navy when I was 18. I joined the Navy um, because I was looking for a sense of belonging and I got sucked in by their recruitment uh, material where everybody's wearing the same uniform and everybody looks happy and everybody fits in and everybody moves in time. They're marching, they've got their guns. And, and I looked at it and I thought, here's my home, I'll just fit right in. And I did not at all. <laughs> and I had a horrible time. And uh, it taught me something about myself, you know, at a very difficult time in my life, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, that that was not me. Whoever I was, I was not that person. And I learned it the hard way. And that's that's what Jessica is learning in this novel. Candice, as you keep writing, is the question, what if they're innocent, always going to be foremost in your head? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, I've got two pictures out there at the moment uh, for consideration of what I'll write next. And, yeah, there is one. I'm interested in people who ha- have committed a crime and then, you know, they, it's the same, you know, they admit, oh, I did do it, and then it looks like they've done the same thing again. And it's like people, what people will do sometimes is look at your history and they say, oh, you have a history of that kind of behaviour. And it's very difficult to argue that, you know, this pattern, uh, yes, I've always done that before. Yes, I did have a wife who died in suspicious circumstances, but I'm, I'm telling you that this time I didn't. So, yeah, 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 I think it's fun. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's in my heart as an issue. So it probably will stick around, yeah. Thank you so much, Candice. Have an excellent day writing and we'll look forward to talking to you when the next book's out. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what a great conversation with Xanthi. Reasonable Doubt's a really interesting book and I really like the way that Xanthi combines case studies with an area of interest in terms of forensic science or legal issues. Which case did you like best? Was there a case that really stood out, Catherine? Well, look, for me, they all stood out in a way just because they're all so horrific. I mean, the, the implications are all so horrific. You know, the thought that DNA is not God is most disturbing because as she said, like any other member of the public, I always think if the DNA is there, then they did it. But she proves, she says, what well, proves that isn't the case. The thought that somebody, that there could be another person who'd confessed to the crime, but you're, the wrong person is still convicted is incomprehensible. You know, Khalid. Um, and the discrimination, the way that people with, issues of any kind are discriminated against and do worse in or in the in the legal system is awful. Sue, what do you think? Which case was the case that really impressed you or really concerned you? I found all of them deeply upsetting. I don't like true crime. Great respect to Sophie. I think the, the one that really upset me the most was the one about Kevin Condren, the Indigenous man. And I think 
in those cases that she describes where you have systemic racism and systemic problems with the police, that is actually what upsets me most. And I suppose I should try and explain why I'm making that distinction between true crime and crime fiction, which is that the true crime is relentless in that so many of them are not put right. They're still wrong. And they point to the absolute failures of the judiciary and the police to to in, in these instances. Whereas in crime fiction, what you get is the motives, the characters, you get a more humanistic understanding. In, in true crime, you just get the facts, as it were. You don't get that background. You don't get that story. And you don't get the resolution. So I, I actually read the book with, with a kind of growing feeling of malaise because it confirmed everything that I already worry about in terms of what would happen if one of my family were arrested and how would we cope, you know, what would go on in that scenario. So it, it really undermines my entire kind of conviction that we live in a, in a, a safe and um, a safe and moral universe. <laughs> Andy, Sue's talked about the fact that she enjoys reading crime fiction but was perturbed by true crime. Now, you're a novelist, you write crime. Do you also read true crime? Look, I, I don't read that much. I, I read it more as a research tool, like if I'm kind of interested in something and I might sort of look at, at some true crime stuff. But unfortunately, you know, true crime tends to be written by journalists and they're kind of just rehashing their columns that they've done in the newspaper or, you know, rewording the court transcripts. And so they, they tend to be a bit dry and a, a bit sort of pulpy for my liking. And like Sue, I kind of find them sort of unsatisfying unless they're kind of resolving something and sort of giving you an insight into sort of what happened behind rather than just regurgitating the facts. But that's the great thing about Xanthi's book, though, is that, is that she makes it very accessible and it's very kind of readable, even though you are kind of reading about these, you know, terrible injustices and, and travesties, really. But, but you know, she has this way of kind of engaging and, and you're sort of going beyond just telling you the facts. And, um, I mean, I had a professional sort of interest in the, the Nicola Gobbo Lawyer X case because of the Underbelly series. So we were kind of dancing around all of that with series one. Um, and so it was kind of really interesting to kind of see Xanthi's take on it and just kind of, again, being reminded of like, what were people thinking in allowing that to happen? And the knock-on effect that's still going, like the, there's people in prison that should be in prison that are going to get out. There are crimes that are going to now be you know, unsolvable because the evidence is completely tainted. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, um, not a book I'd pick up normally, but it was a very interesting read. There's some really great and interesting cases. Andy, you said people shouldn't have left, let that happen when you were talking about Nicola Gobbo and the Lawyer X situation. What do you mean by people? Do you mean police or who should have stopped it? Yeah, definitely should have been the, the police should have stopped it. I mean, the Royal Commission is revealing, you know, only kind of fraction of who, who knew what, when and, um, you know, the suspicions that people had that she was playing both sides, you know, kind of you scratch your head going, you know, how is this allowed to happen? You know, why didn't someone sort of say, actually, we need to stop? Or yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one of those really confusing real-life examples that if you were to kind of come up with a plot line in fiction 
this would be kind of no, this has gone too far. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it. Truth trumping fiction every time. Just moving away from Xanthi's book, Reasonable Doubt, and considering true crime more generally, over the years, has there been one case that's really perturbed you? One case of a miscarriage of justice, a wrongful conviction, uh, an innocent person convicted or a guilty let free? Which case, when you think about those words, comes to mind? Sue? I think the case of Lindy Chamberlain, because it was also my first decade in Australia, and it was so kind of revelatory about Australia, about um, Uluru, about dingoes, and about a justice system that judged a woman um, because she did not conform to the way in which a mother was supposed to behave in an instance such as that. And so that particular case, which is, you know, has rolled out through the years, and of course, um, Lindy Chamberlain has been pardoned. Um, there is now a proper death certificate. The, the matinee jacket or was found near a dingo's um, nest or lair, or whatever it is that dingoes actually sleep in. And I think that, that, that long period of time over which that story unfolded and the way in which it became a kind of litmus test for, for understanding how society was, was viewing women as well as the operations of the law. So I think that one for me is the most telling case that I can think of that, is, that stays with me the longest. Just picking up from Sue, uh, talking about Lindy Chamberlain, it was interesting. When I was at school very young, we had a vote. Can you believe it? We had a vote when she was being tried as to whether we thought she was guilty or innocent. And most of the class said guilty. And I might even say everyone except me said guilty. And I put my hand up, not for innocence necessarily, but for a tragedy. I mean, if she had done it, it was potentially a tragedy of a of a mother with a newborn child, and if she hadn't done it, it was a disaster. Um, interesting how the Lindy Chamberlain case became all encompassing in society. Andy, what do you remember of that case, and, and and what are your views on it? Has it has it been a case that stayed with you? I remember just being really confused at the time because you know people were talking about two legged dingoes being the culprits. And just not being under, you know, couldn't quite work that out. But um, yeah, like you, I just sort of saw it as a tragedy, a, a travesty of um, either someone being pushed to the brink and doing something horrible, or you know, having their their child taken by some, you know, a wild dog. I mean, either outcome is horrific, um, and you kind of we do sort of forget about how it just dominated the media. Like you know, we talk about the COVID now and it's like, well, it was Lindy Chamberlain's court case that was doing that back then. And you couldn't, you couldn't not be aware of it. And, and then you kind of had the, um, the, the movie that came out, which then reignited everything. And it's sort of, yeah, it's just one of those cases that's, it's a stain. It's not going to go away. Catherine, where were you when the Lindy Chamberlain case was at its height, when she was being tried, when the inquests were taking place? I was living in the UK when the Lindy Chamberlain case was happening and I don't remember being aware of it which seems odd because it obviously was internationally talked about um, a lot um, I of course came to hear of it later and certainly before we came to live in Australia in the early 1990s I remember the stuff that was made about 
her name, Azaria, meaning chosen by God or whatever nonsense, and that this was somehow proof that, yes, in, she had um, been murdered. The other thing that really struck me was the unfairness of being judged or seen as guilty because you're not behaving in the way that people think a grieving mother ought to behave. It's appalling. Um, the thought that comes to me now, though, is imagine something like that happening today and with with social media and how even just just how it would be it's it's extraordinarily appalling thought when i was speaking to xanthi what became pretty clear was that she has concerns with aspects of our legal system whether it's the way investigations take place or whether the or how evidence is considered either by a jury or by a judge generally do you, would you say you do have confidence in our legal system or not? Sue, you're shaking your head. <laughs> yes, here I am on radio shaking my head. Um, I have anxieties. Um, and, you know, I work in a university. I'm around law students and law professors, and I know that they are very well-intentioned. They're very well-informed. But I'm actually very concerned about what happens um, outside the kind of academic operations of the law, what happens when a case is actually taken to court, particularly because there are, it, it's so complicated and it's, we, we have a very complicated legal system and, and what is allowed and what is not allowed and the way in which, um, in my sense, the, the way in which someone who is accused is not allowed to tell their own story in any way other than through intermediaries and through questions and so it's that whole thing about how how realistically anyone is able to actually represent themselves within that system how about you andy what do you think confidence in the system no confidence in it look i i yeah i don't have a great deal of confidence i think you know there's on an individual level i think people work really hard and do things for the right reasons but i think overall the system is is flawed because ultimately it's the person with the most money that's going to win. Um, and if you've ever kind of witnessed a, um, a trial, it is theatre. And, you know, the best barrister who performs on the day is the one that wins. Um, and, you know, some of the, I can't really think of the right word, but, you know, the, the maybe a little bit more shady barristers, um, they can just say some extraordinary things to get their point across. And you think that's not true. Um, but it's, you know, it's maybe or it's a hypothetical or just imagine if this was the case. Like they're not facts. They're, you know, they're, they're conjecture. Um, so, yeah, I don't really like the, the whole theatre of, of a trial is um, is quite unjust and, um yeah, I, do, I just do think that, you know, we continually see that the um, the person with the most money is the one that, that actually wins. Um, and I can probably see that you're, you're disagreeing with me, Suzanne, but that's that's how I feel. <laughs> Catherine, are you going to defend the system? Um, Andy and Sue have got, um, got concerns. How, where are you placed? Well, look, at least we have a legal system and one that's independent of government. And that's something of huge value. Uh, for example, our judges aren't blatant political appointees as they are in the US, where they're picked for their position on matters like, I don't know, like abortion rights. I mean, I'm not entirely naive. I know that governments 
in Australia pick um, high court the high court judges they want, for example. But I think it's very different. Um, personally, I'd rather stay clear of the law entirely. And I was really struck by Xanthi's comment that most people who are innocent and their families don't really think about legal representation because they think they're innocent and that should be enough. Actually, I think the word system says it all. It's a legal system. All systems are complicated and in every single system, people get trapped and can't get out. But, of course, what it does do is provide a really excellent platform for fiction uh, when you've got people, three of us, four of us here, who have concerns about how the real world works. It obviously makes great material to consider a story and to consider, well, what happens when things go wrong and what are we going to do about it? Now, a lot of crime books are whodunits and we follow the clues to try and beat the investigator to solve the crime. Other crime books aren't like that. Instead, we find ourselves following the tracks or being in the head of someone accused of a crime they say they haven't committed. And as we heard from Candace Fox, this is something that interests her and really she's a master at that. And I want to talk a bit about Candace and how she does this. I really like the Crimson Lake series, which features Ted Concaffey, ex-police detective accused of the sexual assault of a young girl. What do you think? What do you think of Ted Concaffey? Is he someone that stays with you, Sue? Yeah, I, I liked Ted. I liked the first one um, in that series very much indeed. I, I believe that one is actually being adapted into a TV series. I think that's one of the ones that um, uh, I think that series is it, we might see it on screen. And it would be very interesting to see who, who will actually play Concaffey. Um, so I found the first one very, very moving because I also like the um, the female character as well, the offsider. By the third one, I wasn't quite as committed. Um, I, I decided, you know, we, we knew Ted was not guilty and we were following through to the end. Um, but I, I actually was so much more impressed by her two standalones that, have, that we were talking about, which was Gathering Dark and the chase. I think she's really hit her stride with those. I think going for a series with Concafi might have been a bit of a mistake, um, but she was probably encouraged to do that by her by her um, publis- publishers. But I I do think that the the way in which she's now taking those into these standalones is the is has she's been able to do some really interesting things in those books. And she's so daring, isn't she? I mean, with the chase, it opens up and I couldn't believe it. Only someone like Candace Fox would have had the chutzpah to open a story with was it three hundred? Is it a thousand prisoners who are being released en masse? Uh, made me laugh. Like, Andy, you you use humour in your writing. Does Candace make you laugh too? Yeah, she's got a great, um, just that kind of wry one-liner and um, and the asides are really great. And it is that kind of balancing of the dark and the light that she does so well. Um, so, yeah, a big fan. I, I really liked the um, Gathering Dark and The Chase. I did read the, the Hades series when it first came out, but my memory is... I, my memory for books is a bit like a ice cube on a bit of concrete. So once I've kind of read it, it tends to evaporate. So I know I have read them, but I, you know, it was a while ago. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really like Candace's work. Catherine, of Candace Fox's books, which one stays with you? Which one would you recommend to our listeners? When asked that question about any writer, it's often the latest book by that person that comes to mind, isn't it? 
I remember reading Hades and being really, really struck by it. So I definitely recommend that. And I really like Crimson Lake as well, those geese. Um, I loved the great women in Gathering Dark uh, and the whole story, in fact. So that's another recommendation. And I also thought The Chase was a great read. So I think you can just put me down as a general Candice lover. Read anything. Start with the first one if it's a series. That would be my recommendation. The, the thing that, that impresses me about Candace is that she seems to be fearless and she doesn't seem to be afraid of going to areas um, which are difficult, which are controversial. Do you agree? Do you agree that fearlessness is one of her biggest uh, characters or, or traits? One of the things which I've reflected on is the fact that, of course, Candace's father was a prison officer and she spent a lot of time in prisons, visiting prisons as a child. And then her mother fostered some extraordinary figure, like over 100 children who had obviously come from from broken families with amazing experiences. So Candace has actually lived with the people who are... um, the victims of crime, the perpetrators of crime, on the edges of crime. She knows that world and therefore she's not afraid of it because she also understands the humanity involved and the fact that people are often judged or they're often often caught in situations that they can't control and that they have no ability to control and then they're up against the system and the system is not kind to them. So I think that's where where um, Candace's fearlessness comes from. It comes from the knowledge that there is nothing to be afraid of except fear itself. Oh, that was a cliche, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to jump in. I'm not sure whether it, I mean, fearlessness is obviously a great descriptor, but I think it's also a boldness. Like there's a real, um, she's very bold in her writing and energy. And you kind of, from page one of uh, one of Candace's books, you know exactly where you're going and the problem. And the ideas are big. I mean, the idea of, of having a prison opened and all the escapees let out, like that's a big high concept idea that is so often lacking in Australian writing. And yet, you know, she does that with every book. It's another big, you know, exciting idea that you kind of go, wow, where did that come from? We're just about the end of our time, but before we end, I'm going to open the doors to you all to give us a recommendation for if you had to read one book or if listeners were going to read one book about a wrongful conviction or a miscarriage of justice, what book would that be? I'm going to start with Catherine. Look, this is a really big question, but I would say read anything about the Lafayette Dreyfus, the Dreyfus case. Um, it divided France at the end of the 19th century and it dragged on to the early 20th century. So Alfred Dreyfus worked in the Ministry of Defence and he was framed. I think there's no doubt that's the right word. He was framed for allegedly passing military secrets to the German embassy in Paris on very little, if any, evidence, basically because he was Jewish and he was made a scapegoat. He spent years on Devil's Island. His health was ruined. He was tried twice and found guilty twice but eventually he was pardoned, mainly because of huge public outcry at this extraordinary injustice. He went on to fight for France, the country that had tormented him, is no other word, treated him unbelievably badly in the First World War. And the Dreyfus effect split France in the most extraordinary way. The only analogy I can think of is the division that Trump created in the US where families couldn't talk to each other and fell out over Trump. Exactly the same thing happened in France. It was split between 
pro-Republican, anti-clerical Dreyfusar, as they were called, supporters of Dreyfus, and pro-army, mostly Catholic, anti-Dreyfusar. Um, it was an extraordinary uh, event or, or situation, and it went on for a long time. They also brought to the fore the huge anti-Semitism that showed itself again in France in the Second World, Second World War, and, you know, maybe you could say it contributed towards the founding of the State of Israel. It is the most extraordinary story of a miscarriage of justice, pretty much sanctioned by the state, which divided a whole country and probably has resonances there even today. Andy, what's your what's your recommendation? Oh, I found this really difficult. Um, but I kind of I ended up kind of going with the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith from Thomas Keneally. Um, I kind of thought, well, that's, that's such a... Um, it's a seminal work. It uh, it talks to the injustice of um, of Australian society with you know, white and black relations, but then you've also got the you know, the political arguments about you know around that that work now of like who's got the authority to tell these stories. Um, you know, is it right for someone who's not indigenous to tell an indigenous story? You know, issues of colonialism um, and sort of appropriation. So, yeah, I, I, that was my pick. Um, and then, if you wanted to kind of, I thought, oh, maybe you're asking for a true crime recommendation. If that was the case, then I was going with um, the Ray Denning diaries. Um, and Mark Dappen's recently written a book about um, Ray Ray Denning and Russell Mad Dog Cox. Um, and I've been interested in Ray Denning for a long time. And his prison diaries from the 70s um, are. Like everything horrific you can think about, the prison ju and justice system is in, in are in those um, pages. Sue, what about you? Oh well, my pick is of course um, crime fiction. I have to admit. Um, and before she wrote Gone Girl, Gillian Flynn wrote a couple of great books. One of them was Dark Places, um, published in two thousand and nine, and there was actually a film made starring Charlie Theron, um, released in two thousand and fifteen. And for anyone who was compelled by Gone Girl, it is Doc Places is as brilliantly written, as brilliantly observed. And it involves a young woman going back to her hometown. She's the only survivor of a, ma of a family massacre and her brother is in prison serving um, a prison sentence for apparently committing it. And it's set in the past, in the sense that they returned to the 1980s when there was all these anxieties about satanic killings in the US. And um, it's a reinvestigation of that crime. And it's 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 really, really good book. I read it many years ago before Gone Girl and just thought Gillian Flynn was the best thing um, that I discovered for um, a very long time. And the book that I'm going to add is An American Marriage by Tiari Jones. Fascinating book. It's a story of a young American couple, Celestial and Roy. They're embarking on their lives together. They've both got successful careers. Then Roy's arrested and convicted of a crime his wife knows he didn't commit. It's really about his time in prison, and that's what I like about the book. So many books are concerned about the investigation, but this is about what happens after the conviction is made, what happens to the lives of those who are separated by the justice system. I thought it was absolutely compelling. That's all we've got time for now. Thanks so much to our bad team. Thanks to Sue and Andy and Catherine. Thanks for joining us to all our listeners, and we hope to have your company next month.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.